Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate, weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 160 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining. We have Armin Shimmerman joining us uh, for this episode. He is responsible for creating uh, one of the most um, iconic uh, alien species in all of science fiction. I'm, of course, referring to the Nox. Uh, we have him for a little bit here. And if you are in the chat, uh, you can s- start submitting your questions. But before we uh, really get into the uh, chunk of this, if you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on uh, YouTube, it would mean a great deal. If you click the like button, it really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend and If you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next few days on the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. Again, uh, this is a live show, so my uh, team who's... uh, put uh, uh, together in the YouTube chat are ready to uh, take your questions. We're going to be asking uh, Armin about uh, his time on SG-1 and also uh, primarily his upcoming uh, launch of his third book, Illyria. Uh, He's been working on uh, this series for a little... You know what? Let me just go ahead and and bring him in and ask rather than just go ahead and continue to blubber. And I have um, uh, Linda Gategabber-Fury with me uh, as well, producer. How are you guys doing? Armin, how are you, sir? Very fine. Thank you. And I'd like to correct just something you just said. Oh, please. Um, It uh, it is the third book of Illyria. Illyria is a trilogy, but it is actually my sixth or seventh book that I've published. Oh, I apologize. Okay, so it's wow. Okay, I am. I am sorry. So quite, quite all right. Okay, so this is um. So tell us, tell us about uh this this series. Illyria. Um, I uh, have had this idea of writing this 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 series of novels about um Elizabethan times. So the book takes place uh, in fifteen eighty three in England. And it's a period that I have studied since I was a college major, an English major. Uh, I am a prolific Shakespearean actor, a prolific Shakespearean teacher. Uh, and aside from studying the plays, I've studied the period for a great long time. I became primarily interested in a particular historical character named Dr. John D, who looks a little like this, if you could see him. Hang on just a second. Uh, now let me uh, pull this up. Uh, here. Um, oh, okay. All right. And, and if he looks like a magician to you, it's because a lot of people thought he was, but he had many, many, uh, attributes, things that he did well. He was a great mathematician. He was a great scholar. He, he had the largest library in England. Many people came to him to study. Uh, and if, and 
most likely he was a spy for the Elizabethan crown. So uh, my series, Illyria, deals with a particular adventure that he is uh, required to take on, an investigation into the loyalty of a particular count in the English Channel. At the, at, uh, many people do not are not aware that uh, Elizabeth, Elizabethan times, uh, and which includes both England and Europe, um, were, were taken up with a great deal of antipathy between Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. It was a horrible time for 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 people who believed in their religions, and many people suffered. And in my book deals with that, um, and so Dee is uh, asked to investigate the loyalty of a Catholic count to uh, the Protestant queen, Elizabeth I. Uh, in the process of getting ready for the, for the mission, he meets a very young Shakespeare, by young I mean 16 years old, and uh, takes him on as a student. Now, uh, this, the book is about finding out who is responsible for smuggling traitors, for want of a better term, uh, into England. A lot of, a lot of uh, missionaries came into England uh, to um, help Catholics celebrate Mass, mm -hmm. but the government always felt that um, these missionaries were there to overthrow the crown. Um, so the story is about finding out if this count uh, is loyal to the queen or is he loyal to the, his Catholic uh, friends in Europe. Uh, and the story is also about how this young man, this William Shakespeare of 16, who is a failed playwright, um, and becomes the William Shakespeare that we're aware of uh, here in the 21st century. That's always been the real big question. And Linda, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the the yeah. next question. The, the you you have um, an a, a a young man who is and to be fair, English is very young at this point anyway. Responsible for about at that time a quarter of the English language. Uh, in terms of the terms that we use today, we use hundreds. And where did he come up with all of this? I mean, he was either divinely blessed or a savant. or And, and after, even after hundreds of years, no one can tap into the human soul like he can. So right. it's interesting that you're taking this direction of, well, he must have had some life experience. So let's tell a story about where... And that not just life be. experience, which I think is very important. I think you're absolutely right, David, about life experience influencing Shakespeare's abilities. But he also had to have access to a great deal of literature mm -hmm. um, because because scholars have poured over his plays and, and recognized the uh, the echoes from other writers. Um, and it's always a question of what Shakespeare was reading at the time he wrote any particular play. So to, in order to do that, he had to access, have access to a lot of books. Um, being a, a relatively poor actor in the beginning of his career, he wouldn't have had much access. He couldn't afford books. Books were very expensive. Um, so where did he get this access? My premise is that um, he he found this, found John Dee, who had an extensive library, and was able to uh, take advantage of that library and read things. Um, over the course of my research into John Dee and over the course of my writing the trilogy, I came to uh, find that certain scholars believe that some of the books that were only to be had in John Dee's library uh, uh, 
scholars will, will cite certain uh, books and the, those books only existed in John Dee's library. So uh, my premise, which was fantastical when I started, may in fact have a lot of truth to it. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, we often ask, you know, imagine if the Library of Alexandria had survived, where That's humanity right. would be now. If someone had had access to a fraction of that material and the right mind had been given access to those books, who knows where yes. we'd be. Linda. John D. Yeah. John D. Let me just finish. John yeah. D. Certainly felt the same way you do, David. And it, it was his uh, modus operandi in life to to accumulate as many of those books or copies of those books as he could find. He was fascinated with classical scholars, and he read them and wrote about them and taught them uh, the the uh, wisdom that th those books had to other people. So, Linda, yes, go ahead with you. <laughs> Linda, actually, I, I'm very thankful. Linda reads very fast. So when we had the opportunity to secure you, she went ahead and absorbed the material. And I wanted to, to bring her in to, to discuss. Yeah, I, I dove into all three books. And um, I'm enjoying them immensely. I'm not quite done with the trilogy yet. Um, I'm about a third of the way through book three, having done books one and two. Good for you. Um, <laughs> And, they're, and not, they're not they're not that easy to read, especially in the beginning. No, no. And I'm loving the language in them. And um, I'll I'll definitely gush about that a lot. The the fact that you have them speaking in the language of Shakespeare's time really drew me to them and, and just immediately hooked me. And and yeah, they're a difficult read. I was stock, stopping a lot to look up words and but I was having great fun doing that. I'm a librarian. So when you give me something a little challenging, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you about Twelfth Night, which figures very majorly in your, your storyline through all three books. Um, Illyria is from Twelfth Night. We've got Count Orsino and Malvolio and the other characters. Um, how did you make that connection? I mean, it seems like a very natural one to me that the island between france and england and the smuggling that that just seems oh sorry cat um <laughs> <laughs> but um how did how did that all come together in your mind that that was the direction you were taking uh, well first i have to give uh uh kudos to um uh to to a friend of mine michael who is a prolific writer and just for a moment, my old age has uh, wiped out his last name. Um, Michael Scott, sorry. Um, uh, Michael Scott actually came up with the idea. Uh, as I was saying to David, uh, this is not; these are not my first novels. And the first novel I ever wrote was, was a novel called Merchant Prince, which I co-wrote with Michael Scott. And in a, a lovely lunch in Ireland one day, Michael suggested that we write a series of novels uh, dealing with John Dee, with William Shakespeare, and with the plays. Um, Michael and I uh, are still good friends, but uh, but that project, uh, he didn't want to follow up on that. He had other things that were perhaps more important for him. And um, but I, but that idea stuck with me about uh, mixing history and the Shakespearean plays together. So I decided to start with Twelfth Night, and uh, it's taken me twenty years really to, uh, to finish my three uh, books about Illyria. And um, uh, I don't know if I'll ever get around to another play, but uh, so it's it starts with Twelfth Night, a play that I was very familiar with. I had directed twice, 
And uh, I don't think I've ever performed in, but I've seen dozens of times. Uh, and it's perhaps one of Shakespeare's great comedies. It, uh, that and As You Like It are perhaps the two best comedies he ever wrote. So that's how that started. Wow. Okay. Cool. I am kind of... Uh blown away by the the I don't know how you were able to put these out as quickly as you were I mean but perhaps they're the, not quickly it's 20 years in the making well oh, that's certainly true but I mean in terms of the books one after the other you know I mean the the language in them the the prose the the fluidity of them uh I'm really kind of uh, only someone who is well versed backwards and forwards pretty much with Shakespeare could be able to pull something like this off as convincing as you have the the it's it's not easy for a modern person to absorb the 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 content in such a way as to to it, put it back out in a language that's kind of all its own you know that you you're reading it and it flows it's like i don't necessarily always get every word like when you're listening to shakespeare but i definitely understand exactly what he's talking about and and you put your finger on it exactly david um as an actor I am very familiar with the experience that oftentimes audiences and oftentimes me when I sit in an audience do not understand what's being said. Most of the time I attribute that to the actors and not to Shakespeare. Uh, and that's what I teach when I teach Shakespeare is how to make that language understandable to a modern audience. But that said, there are still passages that are difficult for me to understand, even with my 40 plus years studying Shakespeare. But I, I wanted to emulate that sort of um, language. Uh, and and if I can do what you just said happens to you when you read it, then I have been very successful because that's what I wanted. I wanted people to understand it. But as Linda said, sometimes force them to go to their dictionaries and look up words. That's with any, I think, with any good um, uh, uh, story something that makes us and with science fiction and with uh, this goes back to stargate it makes us go wow that was interesting oh pieces of it or more of it than i thought were based on fact well let me go to a library and and pick up a book on this and and discover something new and oh may wow i've 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 fallen maybe fallen in love with a whole new uh thing that will lead me in a new trajectory in my life that's what well, the best literature does Right. And, and what one of the things I, I'm very careful about in my books is, yes, I'm talking about the, the fictional characters of Twelfth Night. Uh, we can talk more about that in a moment. But I was also enormously concerned about the historical facts of the period. And Correct. almost every fact that I use, almost every fact, uh, you can depend upon me as the author. What I'm telling you is the truth. So so I'm trying to dispel the idea of merry old England that many people have of this period and try to tell them exactly how difficult uh, and how tenuous this period was for a lot of people. And I'm also trying to deal with the other things that I told you about was the education of Shakespeare and, and the the um, enormous um, um, um life-threatening events that were happening because of people's differences of opinion on religion. Linda. Now, um, John D. also appears in the Merchant Prince series, and that okay. one's science fiction, and you've got him transported into the future. Um, 
how did you first discover him? And, and I mean, he's fascinating. I went and read, you know, a short biography online of him and I'm like, I got to find a longer one to read next. <laughs> uh, then get yourself the Queen's Conjurer, which is a wonderful book about John D. All right. Um, but um, again, we have to go back to Michael Scott. Uh, when I first uh, sat down to write Merchant Prince with Michael, I had no idea who John D was. Uh, and I, I'm woefully ignorant for a guy who was studying Shakespeare in the period not to know who John D was was uh, was a fault in my in my education. But um, so Michael introduced me to to uh, John D. And John D has been ridiculed for centuries for one of the things he he did. Uh, but if you look at the times and if you if, if and what he tried to do, not to keep anybody in the dark mm. here, is that he he it was a period of time when new discoveries were happening all the time. We were finding out that the Earth was not the center of the universe, that there were people living in the South Pacific, that there was a South Pacific. Um, all sorts of things were, were being explored and found out and blowing people's minds. So John Dee, being a scholar, um, really attempted to find out more about heaven. And um, it being a religious time, uh, it certainly seemed like a, a right thing to do. And, and he tried desperately to communicate with angels. And, and he felt uh, that angels were indeed communicating with him. Wow. The, the, the problem was, uh, for us, in hindsight, we, we've come to learn, or I've come to learn anyway, that the, that the two or three gentlemen um, who were called screers, who, who went into trances and said they were communicating with angels, and John Dee is a was the uh, secretary writing down what these screers were telling them in their trances. I think these guys were phony. Um, who knows? But I think they were phony. But John D. believed them. And um, and after his death, that particular quest of John D.'s made him the laughingstock of a lot of scholars and uh -huh. a lot of historians. Um, and, and they disregarded all the incredible other things that he did. Okay. Uh, but la now I would say in the last 75 years, his reputation is being burnished and uh, uh, and people are coming to realize that he was enormously influential for the times and certainly for Elizabeth the first. It's like a Elizabethan Tesla almost. You know, I've, exactly. I've, I've read books on Shakespeare even fairly recently. And I'm like, I've I've never heard of this man. You know, and it's like, why? You know, he's he's certainly compelling and makes me want to go and read about him even more. There so. is some supposition that perhaps John Dee was the architect for the Globe Theater, um, and that oh. there are that there are angles in the Globe Theater that may be attributed to him uh, because of their mystical nature. Um, but he was both scientist and mystic, and and he's not the only one. There were a, a lot of scientists at that time that were both scientists and mystics, and um, uh, it was a very fascinating man. And I've spent ever since Michael brought him into my purview uh i've spent my entire life studying john d and as well as other things if you look at the book art for the the previous books there is a um a resemblance there uh armin is he your avatar in these do you do you kind of put yourself uh, in his place in in writing it, in the merchant prince yes there is that suggestion uh, but i think 
uh, with all due respect to Simon Schuster, who are my publishers for the Merchant Prince series, I think they were more interested in me as Quark than they were as me uh, or, or as John D. And so uh, they have me uh, uh, sort of represented on those book covers. Uh, on my Illyria series, there are, I'm looking at them now, there are no pictures of anybody, really. Uh, so, no, we, we didn't do that in the Illyria series. Understood. The... Um... The I, I Linda, if if you can lean into to this, I, I would I would appreciate it. But I'm I'm I had a I had a long conversation with Linda last night about the books, and I am always as a sci-fi fan coming away going, okay, what what do I or what can I take away from this content? What is being said between the lines? that I can take on and incorporate into, into uh, my life or what, what is, what is, what is trying to be said about a reflection on modern times? Because any, any good literature holds a mirror up to all of us. Um, Science fiction is very good about that. That is, that is the best part of science fiction is it holds the mirror up and through the prism of fantasy, we get an insight into what's happening right in front of us. I'm I'm getting a vibe that, and please tell me if I'm wrong, that you're you're trying to illustrate um, uh, that we continually have opposition with one another and and have our sacred cows that we hold on to and consider those more important than listening and communicating with one another. Is that is that reasonable? Yes, that's very reasonable, and that's something I was trying to incorporate in, into the story. Uh, John D. is sort of in the middle between these two opposing religious sides. Uh, he was a participant in both religions. Um, he was a chaplain, a Catholic chaplain, and, and as a courtier in Elizabethan court, uh, he took on Protestantism as his foremost religion. His wife certainly was a Protestant, Jane D. Um, and so he's mediating between the two, and and there is sort of uh he's open-minded to listening to both but but he's he's trying to thread the needle of 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 um of finding out what his mission is about about finding out about uh, orsino and i've count i've called him the count and not said his name before that is the that is the connection the count that uh, i was mentioning earlier is count orsino and for those of you who are familiar with 12th night you know that that's a fictional character from um from Twelfth Night, but everybody else besides the the fictional characters from Twelfth Night, everybody else in the novels are all historical characters. Wow! And they all would have interacted with Shakespeare in the way that um, I suggest they might. Yeah, Walsingham um, definitely gets a mention, and um, he was very much he was sort of Elizabeth's advisor, but also He was more an her. advisor. He, yeah. he, uh, he was an advisor. There were two major counselors for the Elizabethan uh, court. One was a man named uh, William Cecil, Count uh, Lord Burley, who was the primary advisor, the primary secretary. But the second one, the most, certainly at times even more important than, than Burley, was Walsingham, who was in charge of foreign affairs and had a an extensive spy ring. It was one of the uh, he wasn't the first person to use spies, but but uh, he he used it to a great extent and was able to keep Elizabeth on the throne for as long as she did because he was able to uh, find out about the secret plots that were being waged against her. 
it was always a threat of the Elizabethan government that Elizabeth was going to be assassinated. And what people, for the most part, don't know was that there were many attempts, many attempts to assassinate Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. She wore, but, she wore clothes, yeah. enough clothes to prevent assassin's daggers from going right. after and, her. And ironically, <laughs> or ironically perhaps is not the right word, but uh, interestingly enough, one of the assassins that tried to kill Elizabeth was a relative of William Shakespeare's. That's correct. Wow. No, it's okay. a relative of, of his father's. Um, well, actually, a relative of his mother's. Oh, his mother's. Excuse me. Okay. I apologize. Um, and yet, uh, the, man, it's a brutal period of history. It's I mean, brutal. we're we're talking about an assassin who um, who had uh, plotted to overthrow her was disemboweled in front of her in, in front of the court, much to the disgust of all. Even Elizabeth at that point, they're like, you know what? Maybe we sh- we shouldn't even do this. This was it was a pivotal a pivotal yeah, period. They never, could... they never they never backed away from gore. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I think I think their understanding if I may, uh, was that if we made the punishment gory and correct, that, that we would persuade people not to, not to do anything that they shouldn't do. Yeah. The, okay. It's, it's a period of time where if you said the wrong thing to the wrong person, you would be put to death. Right. And it, we in a modern world can't realistically fathom that level of stress when you believe in something so devoutly because of X, Y, or Z, and you, what a what a world to live. And on top of that, it was a very smelly world. Like one of the things that you're doing in the book is 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 you're very sensory in the, in these books as well. I mean, the Thames stank, okay. <laughs> uh, and the people stank. And bath, yeah. you know, the, the Queen took a bath twice a year. Yeah, um, and um, people stank, and that's why perfume. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, civet was uh, was used constantly to cover up the odors of people. But but going back to your question about about science fiction, how is that related to my books? Yes. certainly. Uh, uh, there is an episode which Linda I think has already read because it happens in the first book, um, where he has a um, a trance like uh, event where he's given some information that uh, that comes from outside of himself that could be heavenly information. There's that. Um, I left, I was, because my Merchant Prince novels are indeed, as you said, David, science fiction, um, that I wanted to not deal with that so much. I wanted to deal with actual history as opposed to possible science fiction. The great thing about science fiction that I've learned over the years is that what's science fiction in the 1950s becomes a reality in 2021 or 2023. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There are some things that were used on Deep Space Nine, like like pads, for instance, and Elcar's displays that we take for commonplace now, even talking to the computer. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. how fast it happens. And who predicted which one first? I mean, so <laughs> there's a reason that the iPad is called a pad. That's right. And there's a reason, if I may, because uh, Leonard Nimoy told me years ago that the, there's a reason why the flip phones look the way they were, the way they are, because they were designed by the designer to look like a... a communicators from uh, yeah. from Star Trek. Can I have a quick aside since you brought up Net- Leonard? Sure. I'm a huge audiobook fan and I loved Alien Voices. Um Thank you. That was that was just a treat, uh especially the t- the time machine. Um that there's 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 so 
much that Leonard, John Delancey, you, Roxanne, Andrew Robbins, you guys made – I'm disappointed that they're not on Audible. A couple are on Audible. But if you in the audience have not heard these, they are extraordinary listens, especially yeah. if you're Audible fans, especially if you spend a lot of time on the roads. Wonderful adaptations of science fiction and literature uh, that, that just they, – they, they come to life. Well, thank you. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, John Delancey and Leonard Nimoy decided to bring the Star Trek actors, some of the actors together to do exactly what David just described. And uh, we did, I think – uh, don't quote me, but I think five, six, maybe seven yeah. uh, different science fiction novels and read them uh, for uh, voiceover. We actually did Lost World, uh, which is a Arthur Conan Doyle book uh, on camera. I don't know if that's on Audible or not, but um, uh, and it was a great time. And it was uh, and I got to work with the uh, incomparable Leonard Nimoy, who directed mm-hmm. the actors in the project. Um, and um, it is one that being a long before I was on Star Trek, I was a huge Star Trek fan. So the idea that Leonard became a, a peer and a friend um, is one of the great satisfactions of my life. Absolutely. And um, I, I hope that they make their, their way to, to more uh, available places. I'd love to have John Delancey on to discuss um, the so was what i'm curious did did covid spur uh your your consumption of time to make this more this trilogy more possible or was this something that you were planning on setting time aside for and getting done anyway well to answer that question correctly i have to tell you a little about how i sold the book okay so um i i found a publisher a wonderful a small publishing company called jumpmaster press i can't praise them highly enough they're a great, great publishing company. And especially after my experiences with Simon & Schuster, which is a larger uh, company, but 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 rather um, uh, distant, at least for me as an author. Um, and when they bought the book, after they bought the book, and it was a book, uh, when they, they said to me, how many words do you have? And when I told them something like 400,000 words, uh, they blinked and said, I don't think you have one book. I think you have three books. <laughs> right. uh, so um, uh, then it became incumbent upon me to figure out how to divide this one large tome yeah. into three different books, which meant uh, from an actor who has worked a lot on TV, the way to do that was simply to have cliffhangers. And and by having the cliffhangers, which are both uh, infuriating uh, and uh, and leaving you in the middle of things, um, <laughs> the end of book two. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, they are infuriating. Cliffhangers are infuriating. Um, but, but it was the way to divide up the book into into three yep. sections. But then, um, and this is the answer to your question. Then it was incumbent upon me to figure out what to do with that cliffhanger to yeah. bring it back to the story that I had originally conceived of. And so a lot of the time during COVID was spent in in not rewriting, but finding a pathway from the cliffhanger uh, to get the story, to pull it back to where I originally had it. Um, and I used the time during COVID to do that primarily. Are you um, 
Are, are you satisfied with, with the end result? Is there anything that's like, you know, I what? am, I'm, I am, I am so happy that that particular problem was set in front of me because I think the books are richer and, and much more interesting with the cliffhangers and the, and the pathway from the cliffhanger back to the story. I, I, I think it also allowed me to, to, to go deeper into what I was thinking about, what, what I was writing about and, and really had to conceive of ways to to make these characters as as real and as viable as possible. Wow. They are uh, the Illyria book series. I'm going to put them on uh, the screen now. If I can pull that off here real quick, there we go. Betrayal of Angels uh, is book one. A Sea of Troubles is book two, and uh, coming out soon, Illyria. Book three, Imbalance of Power. Uh, it looks like arminshimmerman.com slash shop is the place to go. Is that is that right, Armin? I think that's a great place to start. What will happen is I will link you with Jumpmaster Press okay. uh, where you can purchase the books. You don't actually purchase them from me. You purchase them from my publisher from Jumpmaster Press. But yes, that's that's the place to go uh, to, uh, to start with. Or you can go directly to jumpmasterpress.com. And, and buy them there. And a lovely um, uh, uh, hardcover uh, box set here available as well, it looks. It's a very yeah. nice set. That comes out, uh, I don't know exactly when this particular episode of yours will air, but uh, the box set comes out uh, in a number of weeks. On the 24th of January, uh, the box set will be available to everybody. Okay. And and if you want, if it, people are interested, Jumpmaster Press will make available to you uh, or to the readers um, uh, a situation where I can autograph the uh, the books for you. Oh, how nice! Okay, very good. Yeah, this is this is great. Uh, anyone who is fascinated with history, uh, particularly Elizabethan history, you you start digging, you don't you don't stop. There's always something more to to discover there. Very very important part of uh, of human history. Uh, I think this is a, a great tie in um, to. Uh, that period, especially, you know, as thorough as you were about making sure that that historical accuracy was paramount and key to great entertainment. Right. And, and, and speaking of paramount and entertainment, um, <laughs> there is it always seemed to me anyway, there's a great um, synchronicity. Yes. Between uh, actors who've done a lot of Shakespeare, done a lot of classical work, done uh, who have done a lot of science fiction as well. I, I think I think the reason is when you deal with science fiction, you deal with something larger than life. We're not dealing in science fiction with chick, with kitchen sink um, um, tragedies, but rather with cosmic tragedies, with 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 huge questions about certain things about humanity, and something about classical training and classical acting gives you the ability to do that a smidge better than the ordinary actor would do, would be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Very much. Not, not necessarily, definitely not like kitchen sink, but kitchen table issues where people come together and discuss these things. And then they, they go and they sit down and watch Star Trek. It's like, see, that's what I'm talking about. That's what happens right. when you go too far. Right. So. And it, it is a great uh, tribute to any science fiction program that what you just described is what happens, is indeed, after watching a program, hopefully families get together and discuss these issues, uh, which they wouldn't necessarily do if they were just watching, uh, not putting it down, 
but law and order or something like that. You might do that too. But 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 the larger issues that are brought up in science fiction shows usually uh, generate larger uh, debate around the table. Absolutely. Linda, anything more uh, specifically about Illyria before we move forward? Yeah, just is there any chance of them um, coming out as audible titles at some point? There is. Uh, thank you for asking that, Linda. My first book, um, The Trail of Angels, is available as an oh, audio book. Awesome. Uh, it's performed by by a phenomenally good classical actor named Ramon Diacampo, uh, who I've worked with. I've directed in, in a, a play and uh, has been a, a friend of mine for a long time. And is an annual, an award winning uh, voiceover uh, uh, book reader. I, I'm sure there's a better term for it than I just put it. But but he has won many awards, and um, and I'm I'm very uh, pleased and flattered that Ramon agreed to do my book. He did tell me uh, uh, that it was perhaps the hardest book he ever had. To read. But, uh, <laughs> what a compliment! It, it was, uh, especially for a guy who's just done Hamlet. Um, so, um, uh, but it is that 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 is available for the first book, uh, and in time, I imagine Ramon will read the other two as well. Fantastic. I really look forward to that. But any anything akin to Shakespeare, as far as I'm concerned, is is better spoken than read. You know. Shakespeare, right. you don't read him, you perform him, you know, Precisely. he comes to life in, in all kinds of dimensions. So yeah, it was, it was never meant to be read. Not uh, Shakespeare never meant to be read. I don't have to tell anybody that, but, um, and it is so much easier to appreciate Shakespeare when, when a talented actor, a, a communicative actor, uh, one who communicates well, uh, is able to take the language and make it clear to you. That is, that is a blessing that uh, we all hope for when we go to see a Shakespearean play. I want to ask about a couple of talented actors that I remember seeing in this little show uh, set on, on the edge of the frontier of the Gamma Quadrant. And there was a, it's, it's you and it's Andrew Robinson. And uh, one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Edward Gross and Mark Altman's uh, comprehensive 50 uh, year mission or 55 year mission of star i'm sorry ed um where you mention uh you talked a lot about bringing the actors over to your house and you would run the material and run it and rerun it and uh at times where they you guys should have been frankly sleeping or resting to catch up on you know all, all the work that you were doing but you wanted to get the material right and there uh my favorite scene in all of deep space nine I hope you forgive me for just taking a moment about this was it's a scene between you and Andrew and you introduce him to root beer and yes. it's very low key. And you're talking about how ins uh, Andrew actually says insidious. it's insidious. insidious. And then yeah. he says, you know, it's, but uh, the thing is, if you keep drinking it, you begin to like it. It's so bubbly and happy, exactly like the Federation. Is that the scene that, you um that the director wanted to go a little bit more high key in and you guys said let's just play this as because it ends wonderfully with with andrew going do you think they'll be able to save us and you and quark just says god i hope so is that is that the scene that you're that you're yes. mentioning man yeah, this is the exactly best the scene, scene in the series um thank you for that um yes uh, uh to start with your preface um for years uh, I would bring together the actors that I was involved with in a scene to my house during the weekend. And and uh, they, out of the goodness of their hearts, giving up time, not getting paid 
just because they, as you said, wanted to do the best work they possibly could. Uh, they would come to my house. We would rehearse it. We would rehearse it. We would look at it every which way to Sunday and uh, and and be prepared on, on Monday to do the scene uh, in a way that we thought would be good. So that indeed happened with Andy and I in this scene. And um, the story, the historical fact, actually, <laughs> is that when we got to the set, uh, as is usual, they, we director said, well, let's read through the scene and see what you guys have. And we did it. And um, because it was a quark scene and it was a, um, a Garrick scene, uh, the producers had said to the director, uh, this is a comic scene and, and that's the way you should direct it. Uh, but, but during the weekend, Andy and I had come up with what you eventually see uh, in the episode that you were so kind about. And we thought there's a lot happening underneath these lines by these two Machiavels. <laughs> um, um, the comic Machiavell, Quark, and the true Machiavell, Garrick. Um, and and when we finished the reading, the director said, well, I can't shoot that. that that's not funny. <sighs> and, um, and we said, we don't think this is funny. Uh, we think this is actually quite serious. You're, in a you're comic at war. Thing. You're at war. Yeah. 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 And uh and Jim Conway, who was the director, uh very wisely said, Well, I can't answer I, I can't shoot it your way and you don't seem to want to do it my way. So uh we're gonna have to bring the producers in. And that's a long walk for the producers. It was on the other side of the lot. And they came finally, they they came to the set. Everything stopped, waiting for judgment to be made. And uh Ira Bear, who's the head of the writing team, mm -hmm. uh, said, what's the problem? We explained the problem to him. Uh, and uh, he said, "Can let me see what Armin and Andy have come up with. Which So we performed that for him. And then he said, can you do it this other way, this comic way? And Andy, who is a phenomenal actor, and I'm a pretty good actor, he said, sure, we can do it that way. Uh, just to show you what you want. And so we did it sort of in the vein that uh, the producers and the director had originally uh, conceived of the scene. Uh, they saw both versions. Ira conferred with his fellow writers who were there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, he turned back, and I would say 30 seconds or so, turned to Jim Conway and said, shoot it the way Armin wants to do it. And so um, we did it. Um, and they saw it in dailies. And they said, those guys are on the right path. They came back to us a couple of days later with some new lines, some new suggestions. Uh, we did it again, uh, using, incorporating the new oh, lines. Oh, you re-recorded the scene? Yeah, we okay. re-recorded the scene because they, they liked the ideas right. that Andy and I had, had been using. And, um, and we re-recorded the scene, and that is the scene that you see in the final version. Wow. Final version. It's, it's that you're right. There's so much subtext going on there because these are two people who um, don't necessarily like the Federation, but they appreciate the utility of the Federation when the chips are really down. That's right. And, you know, when, when the chips are down and you've got this force coming through and they ain't going to stop, who do you turn to? Who do you turn you know? to? Exactly. 
Yeah. So it uh, it's uh, you're not the only one who said it's their favorite scene uh, in Deep Space Nine. I, I I actually think there are a lot better scenes that uh, that I particularly like, and I like that one a lot. I'm not saying I don't like that one, but um, uh, I'm flattered to hear that you feel that way, David. Thank you. Linda, anything before on on DS Nine before we move into? Uh, I mean, I'm sure fan questions will will circle back, but oh, um, I was working as B. Joe Trimble's assistant at the the time that Deep Space Nine was filming and was fortunate enough to, um, through her and through some other people I know uh, associated with Sadig's fan club, get onto the sets um, on three occasions to watch filming. And I was there the um, final day. We, uh, B. Joe had me help her sneak a Make-A-Wish kid onto the set and i don't know if you remember that at all i do remember that but uh. I, <laughs> I just want to thank you profusely for what a good egg everyone was that day and um it was one of the most amazing days on a set that i have ever had in my life and uh, the way you all treated the young lady was just above and beyond well, Make-A-Wish is a great organization. I participated for a number of years in phone calls to uh, kids uh, who were suffering. And um, uh, I was very flattered and uh, enjoyed that experience a great deal because you could hear that, you know, they were a little flummoxed uh, and, and it was up to me yeah. to, to bring them out of themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, no one should have to go through what those kids were going through or yeah. their parents for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. When you especially... have, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. No, no, just especially for the families that that when someone in the family is that ill, it's it's just really heart wrenching, and to know that that they've gotten an amazing day that they can hold on to and hope around, that's that's a big big thing. So I definitely encourage people to support that organization. It's a great great organization and and the smiles and the enjoyment because they don't necessarily smile um when you're yeah. talking to them because they're a little flummoxed. <laughs> oh my god, who, you know, I've got I've got so and so on the phone here with me. Um but I but I get feedback or I used to get feedback uh, from the parents saying you can't imagine uh how my son and my daughter appreciated that. So Linda, yes, thank you for helping them. Armin, we, yes. Ahead, no, go ahead. I'm going to ask if, if Linda and I actually, I'm asking Linda because I've met so many people. Did, did, did we actually speak on the set? Was Yes, sir, we did. Um, I was, I was, you know, a, a bit starstruck that day. And I think I kind of stammered and thanked you for, for letting us in the door. Um, and your wife was there as well, Kitty Swink. And ah. she was just absolutely amazingly lovely to us and came over several times and chatted. And you were, you were in front of the camera the whole time. So you only had a moment here and there, but you, um, David's got the picture. Right? I just, I just showed it to everyone. <laughs> you showed it to everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, it was just those little moments throughout the day where different cast members came over and, and posed with the, the Make-A-Wish kid and, and got pictures with her and um, took a moment to talk. And then and then we all had lunch with you. Um, so I hope he took his teeth was... out. I, I, nothing else came out, but the teeth certainly came out. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's awesome. Armin, um, the Knox. Mm. season one of sg1 late mm -hmm. 90s i'm not sure 
if you are aware, you may be, um, just how important uh, this this race is to the canon of SG-1. It's, it is a literal cornerstone, one of the four cornerstones that hold up the lore of Stargate, this species. Were you aware of that? Uh, I have an inkling of it. Uh, as the years have gone by, <clears throat> people have told me at conventions that, that sort of thing. Um, I was certainly not aware of that for years, but as I said, uh, in my participation in conventions where people who are fans of Stargate come up and tell me uh, things like that, uh, I'm flattered, uh, and, and it's that's great. Uh, I certainly had a wonderful time shooting the episode, and uh, if we have time, I'd like to tell you what I think is a really sweet story about how I got that job. Please. Okay. So... Um, there are four knocks, one, two, three, four. There are four knocks uh, in that episode. Uh, there's myself, uh, there's uh, Frida, who plays uh, Laya. basically my wife. Yeah, yeah Laya, um, uh, the young man. Um, and, and there's an older gentleman as well. Well, that older gentleman is one of my dearest and oldest friends, long before starting, long before starting. And um, in fact, we had met uh, in, in my early career in New York, where we did a Broadway show together, and we were best best buds uh, in that show. And I, for years, have been trying to convince Ray. His name is Ray Zyko, Raymond Zyko, trying to convince him to move to L.A. Uh, for his career and and just for a better lifestyle. And uh, he came out and was living with me, and. Uh, had an audition for Stargate and got cast as that part. Over. About, thank you. And and after about two days after he had gotten the information that he had been cast and was ecstatic about that, uh, uh, the casting director called me up and said, Armin, she didn't we didn't know each other, but she called me up. I don't know why she went around my agent, but she did call me at home and said, um, we'd like to offer you the part of Antaeus um, in Stargate. And uh, and I said, wait, is this the episode that Ray Zypo was in? <laughs> now, she had no idea how I could possibly know that because she didn't know Ray was living with me at the time. <laughs> and... Uh, and she said, yes, yes. And I said, I'll take it. And she said, do you want to know about the part or how much money or what the billing is? I said, no, raise in it. I'll take it. Um, and um, uh, so I did. Uh, the agent called a little bit later and said, I understand you've taken this part. I said, yeah. Um, and um, and then I, I did ask a question of my agent. I didn't ask the casting director. I said, is there any... Is there any makeup involved? Because <laughs> at this point, I was a little tired of Quark's makeup. Um, and they said, no, 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 there's, there's no makeup whatsoever. So you'll be fine. Of course, they didn't tell me about the headdress, um, which was problematic when we put that on. And, and because we did that episode uh, in the woods where it rained a great deal, uh, that straw headdress uh, began to wilt as the days went by. <laughs> Uh, but um, uh, that's the, that's how I got into Stargate. Thank you, Ray Zypha. Wow! And he later appeared on uh, in, in Voyager. 
That's right. As that's well. Right. Um, that's that's terrific. So what did you think of Entius and the Nox as a species? These 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 pacifists who really ultimately honestly turn out to be more like Organians from the original series. You know, it's very similar. As a Star Trek fan, you probably recognize that yourself. There's a very similar arc there. We are not as we appear. That's right. Uh, the young don't often do as they are told. Um, uh, I I love that. I love the twist at the end. I love that reveal at the end. Um, and it was a chance, also an opportunity for me to play something different than Quark. Uh, Antius, uh, whose name I don't believe is ever mentioned in the in the episode, nope. he may, but I don't think it is. But in the script, it said Antius, so I knew that's my name. Um, which ironically is the name of the theater company. It has nothing to do with the Stargate, which I, I wondered. The, name of the theater company that I, I helped run or used to help run. Wow. Um, but I had a wonderful time. Uh, the people on Stargate were just starting their careers on Stargate, and they, of course, knew that I was uh, had now for several years been on Star Trek, so they had lots of questions about conventions, about fandom, about that sort of thing, and they were lovely, lovely people. And if you ever watch the episode again, they rarely shoot you below the knee because all of us were filled with mud from the fact that it had rained every day. And, and, and it, it, there were times, really difficult times sometimes, finding your mark in the mud because the, the mark was all covered with mud and you didn't know where you were supposed to stand. But that aside, that no one needs to know about, um, it was a lovely, lovely time. I had a great time with all the actors on the show who couldn't have been sweeter, just really very nice. And and of course, when we weren't working, I spent all my time with Ray, and we went out to dinner. <laughs> was that the first time you'd worked in Vancouver? Um, I don't think so. I think I did a small movie whose name I don't remember in Vancouver as well. I, I've come to realize what a great place to shoot a TV show Vancouver is. They have a great uh, their bench for crew is phenomenal. They. They can shoot so many shows there because they have so many um, technicians who are very good, and and therefore you, you can you can shoot lots of things there because if somebody's working on one show, another person equally good could be hired to do another show. Mm. Um, Linda, do you have any any questions about the knock specifically? Um, you said that the headdresses were very problematic. Did you have to go for like? costume fittings for for the outfits before yes of course they of course sort of uh, all that and they yeah. and they took a head cast of my head uh to to make the you know the, the straw crown um what it was but because we were in the rain and there was only one as like say a hero there was only one hero straw thing um they couldn't replace it so uh, they were constantly fluffing it up because it was wilting it was in the rain it's just wilting, yeah. wilting. it's vancouver and, um, and uh, but and and because they had to do all that work, uh, it it made sitting there a little bit longer um, as they fluffed it up and made it look as as much like the original first day as they possibly could. Um, but I didn't have to wear any prosthetics on my face, for which I was enormously grateful. And again, that's minor stuff. What was really good was the story. Uh, which was, I thought, incredibly good. And, and again, I want to reiterate, I love the twist at the end. A again, it's the perception that these these knocks 
needed to be helped, that they were incompetent of taking care of themselves, that that the that um, these the humans were you know, superior to the Nox because they were so much better off than the Nox. Yeah. And then at the twist to find out, no, it's the other way around. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I love that. I've always wondered, did were they intended to be using some sort of technology we just didn't see? Or did they have, in fact, powers to, you know... Yeah, what's your interpretation sense? of that, yeah. Armin? I, I've always thought it was technology. I don't okay. think they had powers, but it is very possible that's true. No one shared that with me one way or the other. Okay. But in my own mind, I thought it was technology, which allowed them also to construct their cities up in the clouds. Uh, that's not a power. That's simply their their technology. Yeah. And they had come to learn that simplicity was better than complexity. And and that simplicity was what made life worth living. Um, and and there's a lot of truth in that, uh, at least for me anyway. Uh, as my life goes on, I find that uh, making things simpler is is usually the better way to go. In symbiosis with nature, I got the impression that some of the Knox um, lived a more tradition. I suspect the, the ground dwellers were a more traditional lifestyle. Whereas the ones who chose to live in the clouds remained more with the more technical technological Probably. side, I, I would imagine. And and you know the sort of uh, hippies, I guess the hippies version <laughs> of the Nox. Uh, we we appreciated living in nature and making it as simple as possible. Um, uh, for which, uh, again, I, I I find that uh, uh, the right track to take. Romantic in a way. Very romantic. So. Um... Well, yeah, was there ever yeah. talk about um, bringing your character back again and it just didn't work out? Or was that offer never made? Frida no, came back twice. Yes, Frida came back twice. Yeah, uh, The offer was made. Okay. Uh, uh, I got two phone calls, I believe for perhaps the same two episodes that, uh, that Frida appeared on. Um, but both times I was otherwise engaged and, and could not uh, make time for it. Um, I was very lucky at that period of my life to be working almost constantly, not only on Star Trek, but on other things as well. Um, people are probably aware of my uh, uh, my character on, on Buffy. Uh, but the, I was doing tons of other shows in addition to those two shows. So there just wasn't time to fly to Vancouver and, and, and do that. Um, I, I regret that, but um, I'm glad they used... Uh, um, um, Frida. I'm glad I'm glad they used Frida as often as they did. Absolutely. Brad Wright himself has said, because um, you have to understand that the, so the, there's there's four great races that made up the galaxy eons ago. The Nox, the Asgard, which are the little gray guys in the show, the Furlings, which we never we never see, and then the ancients who built the gates. Um we we spend the entire show finding their technology everywhere. But we never find any Knox tech, and it's it's Brad Wright's argument that uh, he believes that the and he created the the series with Jonathan Glasner that the Knox were even more powerful than the ancients, but wow. they choose not to use their power. They choose to keep their heads down and stay alone, which is an interesting thought. Um, good for them. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it was a delightful episode, and and to get into the mindset of that was. It was quite wonderful. Um, uh, and again, 
after I, you know, once I got the script, um, uh, I I really thought these are great characters, and so and it also gave me the opportunity to do something completely different than what people normally were giving me. Usually, I was playing uh, comic villains and stuff like that. So um, to play to play something so soulful. Mm-hmm. and familial because it was not just about their technology but but the relationship of these four characters uh, you know the four of us in, uh, in tights there um was um was lovely just i don't get that opportunity very often and so it was a delight and again the, the stargate people were wonderful as well so. yeah it's he's so low-key whereas quark's a people person that's right <laughs> Linda, thank you so much for for doing all uh, the the research uh, with me to to bring us up to speed. You read much faster than I do, and and um, yeah, I your uh, pleasure. Thank you, Armin, for all this. I'd like to bring in some fan questions if you don't mind. Sure, but before you do, I just want to thank Linda for good, going through the novels and and for the very good questions. And I think you'll be surprised. You said you got into the the first third of this of the third book. I think you'll be surprised and gratified. Um, by the end of the book, if you if you choose to finish it. Oh, I've I've got cocoa to make over on the counter, and as soon as we're done, I'm just going to curl up and keep going. Good. I'm really enjoying it, and I Good. I can't recommend the books highly enough to other people. Thank you. Yeah, I asked her last night. I, I said, "You're are you now that we're finished? Are you gonna are you gonna put it down? Finish with the interview tomorrow?" And she's like, "No, I'm I'm <laughs> I I'm not going to leave this here." <laughs> There's no spoiler at the end. There's no uh, cliffhanger in the third book. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, or I'd be demanding you write a fourth immediately. <laughs> right, which my publishers are doing. They're demanding I write another one. <laughs> oh, excellent. I, I'm egging them on, and I'm egging you on. Jer- Jeremy Heiner. Armin, what was it like reprising Quark in Lower Decks? Lower Decks. It was great fun. Um, great fun. I, I hadn't been in that mindset for a while, although... Because I've done enough conventions, uh, one never forgets. And of course, seven years, how can you forget? Uh, and I had the great uh, honor to, uh, to to represent Deep Space Nine on Lower Decks, as well as Nana Visitor did as well. We were very flattered and very um, appreciative, very appreciative of the fact that Lower Decks decided to use our characters again. Um, and we hope that, uh, secretly, Nana and I hope that we get another opportunity to do that. I- I hope so as well. Did you have to and put to bring in, and to bring in others and to bring absolutely, in others. yeah. They haven't moved. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Picard because they also were saying that it's it's a it's a DS nine continuation as well, which all of us are like, hmm, okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, um, no, nothing against Patrick, but before they started uh, Picard, uh, he said, "Armin, I love the Ferengi. I, I love you." Um, we'll get you into Picard. Well, they've done three seasons. <laughs> I've yet to get a phone call uh, for that show. But um, did, I think you were about to ask, did I have to wear the teeth? Um, for the audio. The you were about? Yeah, yeah, for the audio. Um, I did wear a set of teeth that I had made for me uh, because my set of teeth uh, uh, doesn't fit anymore. Uh-huh. One of the things about the human body was that your teeth move in your mouth. And so the prosthetic, uh, after all these years, no longer fit the teeth that I now have or the positions that the, my teeth are now in. So I couldn't put them in. There was no way to get them in to stay there and, and actually be understandable. 
So uh, not for lower decks, but for something else, I had a new set of teeth made. So I did wear those teeth mm. um, for the show, but they weren't constructed the same way the show's teeth were. They were prosthetics, but but they weren't constructed. And so there are times when I listened to lower decks and I went, it doesn't sound like the teeth are in. Um, so So yes, they're in. But the sound quality isn't comparable to the original set of teeth that I had on the show. Here's the thing. Um, you're aging, but Quark was also aging as well. So I think you could maybe yeah, make the He ages excuse. a lot slower than I do. Uh, <laughs> as I understand the mythology, I live a great long time. That's true. So um, I would make and, that excuse, though. Quark's teeth yeah. have also changed, too. Uh, one would think, especially since he sharpens them all the time with a little tooth sharpener prop that we we had a couple of times on a couple of episodes. General Maximus just wanted to make your com- uh, a comment. Your character and race are arguably the most underdeveloped in the franchise, and fans are desperate to see and know more. Here, here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I would be desperate, and I'm sure so would Max, so would Jeff, uh, so would all the other actors who played Ferengi. Uh, to uh, to see more of the Ferengi. And I would be, people will often ask, would you go back and recreate Quark? Uh, and my answer is, I would love to do a recurring character on some show, but that would be terrific. And I, and I hope, as I said about Lower Decks as well, I hope that that does happen. I think uh, being of the age that I am, uh, I, I would be a little bit reluctant if they were to say to me, we're going to do a whole show around Quark and then you, you mm. are going to be the series regular. Um, I, I I don't know if I could face that uh, makeup process mm-hmm. day after day after day uh, as well as I did when I was in my 40s. Mm. So um, that, but to to come back and do a recurring character, um, I, I, I would love to do that. Just for clarification, uh, he was referring to the Knox. Oh, oh, so so sorry. Most people have that me works as well it. too. Yeah. Uh, and now that I have a lot of time, I would love to go do that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, because I really did like that character a great deal, and and only because of circumstances was I not able to recreate mm-hmm. that character more than once. Mama Knox, Erica, uh, which which one would you relate to being more like in real life, Quark or Antius? Oh, far and away, Antius. Okay. Quark is a lovely character and actors love to play something other than themselves. Right. Um, and some actors love to play themselves. But but for me, uh, uh, Antaeus is much closer to who I really am than Quark is. Uh, playing Quark is a little like being drunk at a party and having a, a lampshade over your head. You can do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> so I did do whatever I wanted. But... Um, <laughs> But but Antaeus is is that softer side, that gentler side. Um, I think most people who know me would say yes, that's a better fit for me. Elizabeth Lee, um, uh, did you notice any significant uh, differences in production while you worked between between the two shows? Stargate was just getting started. It would ultimately do seventeen seasons, much like much right. like the, the the Star Trek team did. Right, uh, uh, because they were just getting started, mm. and and that explains what I'm about to say. They were a little slower about moving along, about moving from one setup to the next setup, from mm-hmm. moving from one scene to the other. And also we had the dilemma of the rain, which was causing delays uh, it, it, on the technical side as well. Yeah. So um, there was that. Um, and also, um, 
when I was doing Star Trek as the years passed, I was very comfortable in that skin because I had played it for so long. When I was creating Antaeus, it was a, a new creation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what, what am I learning about this character as, as each moment progresses? Um, and so that was a different experience as well. I, I'm learning who the character is as the eight days progressed. Whereas in Star Trek, uh, though they would give me different scenarios to play, I knew who the character was and I knew how he would react mm -hmm. to certain things. Although I had come up with uh, in, um, um, intentions about each script. So there was that difference as well. Sophie wanted, uh, oh. we recently lost uh, Rene Aubergenois. Um, I believe uh, it's two years now. A little over. It's just recently two years. Yes, and we and we all we also um, we also lost. Um, Aaron. Oh, uh, yeah, Aaron Eisenberg. Um, uh, you uh, can you share uh, a memory uh, with uh, Renee that you had? You spent a lot of time together. Yeah, we spent a lot of time together. Coyote uh, and the Sheepdog. Uh, um, Renee and I had met prior to doing. Deep Space Nine. We had done a play together in Los Angeles called Petrified Forest. And although we were both in the same play, we we rarely spoke to each other because we had no scenes together. And um, uh, and there was no really reason to for us to communicate. Um, and that all changed with Deep Space Nine. Uh, the relationship the love, if I can put it that way, that both of us had for each other uh, became manifest early on. And the writers began to see that in the dailies. And so what was originally an antithetical, solely antithetical relationship, the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper, um, <laughs> uh, morphed into this love-hate bromance, for want of a better term. Um, and, and I... Our writers were always astounded that as the years went by, R Renee and I and Judith and Kitty would take our own vacations together. We would go, we would take vacations together uh, because uh, our our friendship was so close. Um, there are there are thousands of incidents that I that I could probably conjure up, but um, um, I love the man. Um, I was in awe of him as well. Uh, for those of you who don't know Renee's theatrical career or his resume, um, it's quite phenomenal. He is a he is a he is a prince of the American theater, and I, being a, a fledgling actor, was in awe of that. And so it was a great honor, as well as a great love affair for me to work with him. And and Renee, in the beginning, as as we mentioned before, would come to the house, we would rehearse our scenes together. And um, it's just our, our, our friendship grew and grew and grew and grew. And, and, and even after the show was over, continued to flourish. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I... <laughs> I, I wasn't if 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 you choose to to not have anything to add about this is fine but I I read this as well and was f frankly pissed. Um Evie Cahill, uh I'm a huge Seinfeld fan and I recently read about your experience on set and frankly I'm appalled by the cast's behavior. Um how would you compare that to your experience on Stargate? <laughs> oh, night and day. Yeah, right. Night and day. I I mean the the guys on Stargate were 
uh, were really kind. They, they were just starting out, so they were very kind. And they were fascinated because they knew that they were going to have to be going to conventions soon. Right. And, and, they, and they knew that they had to deal uh, what's fandom like. And they would pump me for uh, uh, my opinions on that sort of thing. So they were very sweet, very, very considerate. Um, um, couldn't have been nicer. Really were wonderful. And and as you read, and I, uh, you know, I'm a little loath to say it again, but right. but it is the truth. Um, the people on Star, on excuse me, on Seinfeld, um, were less than communicative. Communicative. Um, they. Um, they ignored me for uh, an entire week. Uh, uh, they rare, rarely said a word to me when we weren't, you know, actually working. Um, I, it's no fault of the production, but mm -hmm. there was a, a slight um, foul up, which was they didn't have a dressing room for me, which is against union rules. Um, and so I sat uh, on the bleachers where the audience normally sat on, on the shoot day. And... Um, I was there, uh, you know, I, I was right there and, and nobody really spoke to me, including Jason, who I had known uh, somewhat before the show. What, what, um, does it just standoffishness? I mean, I don't, I, it's I one of the greatest shows on television and, you know, behind the I, scenes, it's like, uh. I can't tell you. Okay. I, I, um, I will reiterate something that you probably read because it is, it is the most galling of the events, um, while we were shooting the show, to make the story as short as possible, it was required that Seinfeld and, forgive me, the lady... Um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Yeah. Um, we, the three of us were sitting on a small uh, court bench. Uh, very, It was very tight. So that literally, uh, wherever you see my headphones, they were just on either side. And I was in the middle and they were on either side. Yeah. And we had to wait 45 minutes for a lighting thing to be fixed. Um, and it was around Christmas time. And the two of them um, uh, were talking to each other about Christmas and their plans and, and what they were going to do. And do you, in that 45 minutes, not once did they ever turn to me, who was sitting right between them, and say, excuse us for, for you know, talking around you or mm -hmm. ask me what my Christmas plans were. Or, and that's the way the whole week was like. I, I was there. The episode is called The Caddy. I was the caddy. Um, I, I I was, a, you know, I don't want to brag. I'm already bragging, but um, I, I was a series regular on another show. Yeah. Um, uh, I was occurring a lot on a, on a second show. Um, never once wanted to know who I was. Never once. Now, Isn't one of the things that made a difference on Stargate, at least when I was there, and certainly during the seven years that I was on Deep Space Nine, every series regular always took the time to find out what their guest star's life was about. It, it's it's the human thing to do, and, and it also makes the, the guest stars more comfortable. So it's a practical thing to do so that if they feel more comfortable, they will give a better performance. Um, that was not the truth on Seinfeld. Well... I apologize for the. No, 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 for you to apologize. I, all, all, apologize. all as, all as, as to uh, all this to say, it's it's a wonderful episode of television, and what you what you had to go through to endure to to make that a half hour possible. Thank you for it because it's a great it's a great half hour of TV. You're you're welcome, and they had made it up to me slightly. It, it's the one show that I think I get the most residuals from, so um, <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Absolutely. Why not?
Oh, Erpel Homo. Armin, what would happen if Quark was stranded on an uninhabited planet with Antius? Oh my gosh. Um, uh, I, I would not I, go I, well. It would not go well. No, <laughs> um, it would not go well. Um, once they got over talking about Armin Shimmerman, I think they would have nothing to say to each other. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, man. Um, uh, let me see here. Uh, Lockwatcher, uh, you have worked as everything from an alien to a judge over the years. Um, in all these years, uh, is there any proper costume uh, that you have have kept that uh, is close to your heart? You mentioned you had the teeth. I would hope you have a set of ears. No, no, I have. I have nothing from um, Star Trek. Except the teeth, and 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 they, I've thrown those out because they don't fit anymore. Right. Um, I have one little artifact up above me that you can't see uh, from Quark's bar that I didn't take. <clears throat> that um, that was given me when when one of the set designers heard years later that I had taken nothing from the set. Um, yeah. By the, by the way, you asked me a nice story about Rene. <laughs> Rene drove up to the set back. Basically, he didn't actually, but. With a pickup truck and a hammer and a chisel, and he took everything <laughs> he could. Um, um, uh, no, I have no costumes. I, I have no props. Um, I'm a dutiful actor. If they give it to me, I return it. And uh, I, yes, I would like to have some things. And the reason I don't have anything, especially especially from Star Trek, is that when I heard that they were dismantling the set. Um, I did not want to go and see it taken apart. I did. I wanted to yeah. live with the memories of the way it all, the way that I knew it. I did Amen. not want to see it in disarray, and and so I said, nope, I'm not going back for anything because mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to have that image in my mind. I only want to have the image of of the way it was. The final scenes on Deep Space Nine were filmed in. Um, Vic's bar, weren't yeah. they? I know yeah. you had one more scene after the main right. cast left for the day. Right. But um, earlier in the, the day, Bijo and I took the Mich- Make-A-Wish Child over to the promenade sets and they were indeed dismantling them and we all just sort of yeah. stood there and went... Yeah. Um, lucky, lucky for me, Linda, I didn't see that because indeed... Yeah, uh, you didn't uh, want the, to. Right, because the... the uh, uh, fountain uh, set was somewhere else wasn't on the promenade was yeah. somewhere else and our last uh, scene which uh, was Fontaine and I together uh, Jimmy Darren um, uh, we didn't do on the promenade either so I never saw that yeah you're yeah. you're lucky you didn't it was upsetting <laughs> I, 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 it would certainly be upsetting for me and, and I, I just didn't want to go through that I, no yeah. Agreed. I saw the SG-1 uh, Stargate Command after it was uh, dis- what was left of that soundstage after it was dismantled. It was disheartening. So, I mean, it's re- reality, but at the same time, it's like that always stays with you. So I get it, Armin. Yeah. I mean, as a young man, just tangential to this, when I was at college at UCLA, um, they had dismantled the original Star Trek and the the board that O'Hara looked into had been given to UCLA. And so it was a rather large piece of, of, of scenery. And uh, and seeing it for real mm-hmm. um, uh, was disheartening for a guy who was a huge fan of Star Trek. So 
that was part of my my reasoning for why I didn't want to see Deep Space Nine as an anthem. That makes a lot of sense. Kind of the ultimate breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. It's a little like meeting people that you've always adored and respected. When you come to find out who the real human beings are, you can slightly be disappointed at times. Never meet your never meet your heroes. That's right. Never meet your so, heroes. Uh, uh, Scott said uh, we've we've also uh, lost uh, Aaron Eisenberg. Um, Whose you... birthday it was yesterday? Yes. Yeah. Do you have Do you have any uh, any any particular memories of him? Or one that you would uh, every, like to share? Every memory that everyone has of Aaron is of laughing. Ah. Um, Aaron was one of the most energetic, funniest people uh, uh, that you could ever meet. He, he I, 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 I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's butt on this, but um, uh, he genuinely wanted to make people laugh. And, and he was so enormously kind and large-hearted um, and he had lived with his illness, um, his kidney problems all of his life. And, and I think he wanted to spend every moment he could, uh, uh, to the fullest extent. Mm. Um, it, uh, it, all I can remember, I can remember many things about Aaron. Uh, but mostly I, I remember his need, desire, gift in making people laugh. You had a a marvelous seven-year run. The Ferengi, I would I would argue more than anyone, had had the best of those seven uh, uh, years because you you began as as one idea in fans' minds and ended in a place where we knew exactly who these people were. They were not who we thought, and they became people we never thought they would they would become. They became. Uh, heroes they became they became people yeah. um that's that was my that was my raison d'etre from the very first day of deep space nine i had created that incredibly bad impression and it was my desire to to erase that oh from the last outpost I, yes from the last outpost wow. uh i, I if you were to ask me what piece of work is the one that you most regret, the last outpost would be absolutely first, second, and third choice. Um, and what I know now of what the Ferengi were supposed to be and what I did with it, uh, including the other uh, three actors who played the Ferengi as well, but primarily me because I had the largest part. Um uh, I regret that to this day. On the other hand, those horrible mistakes led to my playing Quark, uh, where I got the opportunity to not only um, fix that, as you just said, David, but also to uh, get involved with the franchise, which as a fan, I was normally gratified by that, but also an opportunity to play a character that I believe is perhaps the most human of all the characters on Star Trek. And that's not just my show. Um, I believe the Ferengi are the closest things we have to true humanity. Now you may think, but they're greedy and they're and they're suspicious and they're conniving and 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 all those things. And I would say yes. Yes. Um, but they also have big hearts. Uh -huh. And you know what? That's humanity. Humanity 
is interested in in surviving and 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 making the best of things, but also at times can flip that on its uh, on its head. And, or it's here. On its ear, <laughs> and 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 do something enormously uh, saint-like. You know, uh, I, I imagine there are there are a number of uh, factors out there um, who would consider themselves immensely blessed to to have a seven-year run at a shot at anything. So it must be very satisfying uh, to look back on your body of work and say, "Yeah, there's there's some good ones in there, and ones that." Yeah parents can share with their kids they can watch tv with this program with their kids and say watch this character and be like this character well maybe not necessarily the beginning but be like this character by the end yeah and and also um we provided some stories not just uh not just the the ferengi stories but other stories that linda i think uh, spoke about much earlier things that promoted conversation that promoted a debate around the kitchen table about well you know what can we learn from what we just saw mm-hmm. do we agree with what the show just said or do we do we not agree do, it, does it does it promulgate new ideas about certain things um i i i think science fiction and, and certainly star trek have been trying to do that since the the very conception of those ideas have you watched any of the orville no i haven't seen orville yet no it's extraordinary science fiction extraordinary it, it gets going right away i i really recommend it thank you i will i, I don't know why uh it, it may be on a channel that i don't get uh, but i just haven't seen it yet understood all right linda do you have anything further um i'm just wondering whether you have any other projects coming up yeah, that what's you next armin share with us sure. um i found after completing the illyria trilogy which was exhausting but but uh, enjoyable, very very enjoyable and creative. That um, uh, as the weeks went by and the months went by, I began to regret that I had nothing to do, nothing to write. Yeah. So um, and as I mentioned briefly, my publishers are begging me to write another book. Um, so I've been dickering with ideas about what another novel might be, um, and I. I I have sort of begun begun to think about that. On the other hand, um, it's a daunting thing to write a novel. Um, And people have always asked me, you're an actor, why have you never written a play? So um, I have actually started uh, writing pages on a play that also takes place in Elizabethan times. Because that's what I know, you know what they say about writers, write what you know about. and so there's that. And um, I, besides being an actor and a writer, I sometimes uh, am also a director. Mm-hmm. I've directed quite a, a number of Shakespearean plays. And um, uh, there is the possibility that next year um, I might, uh, I've been asked to, po- to possibly direct another uh, Shakespearean play. So that, that's on my agenda. And as far as acting goes, uh, I've learned over the course of, of decades that um, my employment just comes out of the blue. It's like the phone call I told you about uh, for uh, for Stargate. Um, uh, things just come out of the blue. So I'm expecting the blue to open up and, and provide me some more acting work. Although at my age, um, there's nothing wrong with being my age, but this, but the 
the business tends to look for people a little bit younger than I am. Occasionally they find work for us old geezers, but um, uh, so I'm not expecting a lot of work. Although I, I tend now to concentrate on work on stage, which was always my first love. And uh, I have done, I did a play in Kansas for a number of months back in the summer. And I'm hoping that any one of the theaters I've worked for in the last two decades, um, and they've made noises about it, that they'd like to have me back and do some more plays. And that's enjoyable to me. You cannot beat the 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 energy of a live performance. No, you can't. And, 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 and the, the connection between uh, the performers and the audience is palpable. And, it, and not only for the audience, I mean, you sat in the audience and, and felt the power of performance on stage. But but from the other side, uh, there's no actor can, there's no experience for an actor like knowing the audience is with you, whether it's a laugh, if it's a comic play or a complete silence. Nothing thrills an actor more than hearing nothing. Mm-hmm. Hearing apps, no one is breathing. Nobody's moving. Nobody's opening candy wrappers. That rarely happens. Um, but but the, when you get complete stillness, you know you have the audience in the palm of your hand, and you know you are working on all cylinders. That there is nothing like uh, experiencing that. This was um, a real treat, and I yeah. really thank you. Uh, from the thank bottom you, of my heart for taking the time with us. This... Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you for talking about my book and, and uh, the various things I've done in my life. Um, it, it's, it's a joy for me to, to share that with others. And, uh, and it's, uh, if I may, I'm particularly enthused by Minda's enthusiasm for my book. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and and thank you, Linda, uh, for the research as well. I'm going to uh, wrap things up here. If you need to go, I totally get it, but I'll be done in about two minutes here. So thank you, Armin, again, very much. My pleasure. Armin Shimmerman. Happy New Year to everyone. And to you, sir. Armin Shimmerman. And I muted my microphone. I apologize, everyone. <laughs> I muted both of them. Armin Shimmerman and Tias in Stargate SG-1. And you can uh, uh, check out his Illyria book series at arminshimmerman.com. And that's in uh, the link uh, below as well to uh, support him. Uh, big thanks to Linda uh, Gategaber Fury for making uh, this uh, this conversation uh, complete and, uh, and uh, truly full. Uh, with uh, this discussion as well. And thank you to my moderating team, Summer, Tracy, Jeremy Reese, and Anthony. Uh, big thanks to Frederick Marku at Concepts Web, our web developer over at Dial the Gate. He keeps everything uh, spinning uh, smoothly in the background here. Uh, my name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. I thank you so much for tuning in. My thanks again to Armin Shimmerman, and we will see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, 
Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs> <laughs>